is happening all over the United States. People are leaving their jobs during the COVID pandemic, often in search of greater work-life balance and to do more meaningful work. Companies are now reevaluating how to retain talent in this new workplace landscape. In this episode of The Surge Experience, I talked to Philip Wilkerson, a career counselor in higher education, about what we can learn from the Great Resignation. Phil, thanks for coming on. Um, I really wanted to have you on because of your background in career services and in higher education. Um, I really enjoy you know, what you've been doing on LinkedIn Live. And I wanted to talk to you specifically about this great resignation and people leaving their job across the country. I mean, what, do you have any specific thoughts as to yeah, why that's I, happening? And this is very timely. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the word resignation, I feel like it should be called like the great migration, which is kind of an illusion of that, you know, when black people move from the South to the North, the great migration. But I feel like it should be great resignation and uh, migration because for what I'm understanding is people retire early, you know, even just in higher ed. I've seen people that are like almost like one or two more years, but the pandemic just tipped them over. And I was like, you know what? I'm resigning. I'm going to resign resignation. But then also I would say the migration part is that they also just moved on. Or maybe they say they resigned from a complete industry and left. So I think that the term is fluid, but there has been a lot more movement in the workplace than I think is typical. And I would say this as an educator, as an educator, it used to be like, you could count on the waves uh, of moving and hiring, right? Like in between semesters, it wasn't odd for people like they'd finish out the, the, the spring semester and there's a lot of movement in the summer and then vice versa, you know, like in between the, the fall semester and the spring semester, there was a lot of movement. Like I, even I started a new job uh, in December, you know? Oh, wow. But now with this great, like I literally, people leave like, Every two weeks, there is no, that that same wave that you would count on, like waiting to the end of the semester or waiting, I guess, for that time to be right because you didn't want to like uh, leave during mid-semester with all your commitments. People are just leaving when the opportunities present themselves. And so I think that kind of also aligns with that resignation is like, you know, most people like wait a certain period, but these opportunities are coming and going very frequently um, that people are just, you know, I guess what I'm assuming are choosing themselves which is not very uh, typical for employers to deal with. You know, like employees are choosing themselves, making moves based on what is best for them and just moving. And so that is what is called this great resignation and, and this hot, this, uh, I don't know, like, I don't think it's a problem, but like this obstacle that maybe uh, institutions are facing where they're like, wow, a lot of our talent is just leaving when they want to um, because of this great resignation. And also I think about the, the world landscape of work of all this virtual work, people are like, wow, I'm leaving a job, but I don't have to go nowhere. Right. A lot of my jobs are remote or hybrid. It's added to that flexibility of just like, you know, I don't have to like pack up everything and uproot my life to move across country. So I think that's also contributed to this uh, great resignation or migration or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to hear you talk about the term great resignation being fluid because uh, there was a financial expert on the Tamron Hall show, Stacey Tisdale, a few months ago, and she called this period the great realization because kind of like you spoke of, right? I mean, people are realizing, gosh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily satisfied with what I'm doing. 
Um, I really enjoy being home or at least being more connected with the people who I live with. Um, there's more out there. I think one is there, and I, there's always a joke with students, but when they say there's no jobs, I think there is actually an abundance of jobs uh, and skilled labor, right? That's one. And two, I think I love that realization is that people are now reprioritizing work-life values or I guess work-life integration. There's no, there's really no balance, right? Like, and so people like you just said are like, wow, you know, during this intense period of, of COVID and pandemic, I want more time with my kids and this nine to five ain't working for me. Or I have this skill set of, you know, digital technology and my employer is not paying me a lot, but this new employer is going to pay me, you know, a 10 to 15% increase for a skill set that I was doing, you know, pre-pandemic. Uh, because there is a more of a digital need. So I think a lot of people are realizing and reprioritizing their, their work-life values. And then sometimes that realization realizes that it's not aligned with their current situation. So they make the appropriate moves to leave. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and they have a lot more power to do so now. As I said, like it's more flexible. Like I don't have to uproot completely my children's lives. I could stay at home and have this new job. And so it's been very interesting to see in a micro version, a small community version, how many people have left. But man, like you just, you see it on a grander scale. Like how many people are on LinkedIn starting new jobs? Congratulations, new job. Congratulations, new job. Congratulations, we have an opening. How many jobs are being shared? So it's like, there's a lot of movement. Um, I'm not an economist by any means, but you know, I don't think there is a shortage of, I guess, intellectual labor, you know, like there, you know, maybe there's certain jobs are very limited, but I think technologically there's a lot more jobs being open. Um, where using your brain and using digital literacy is going to be important and and adds a little bit of flexibility to realization of for yourself. Right. It's gotta be really tough for employers. I would imagine it. And you, you wrote an article it looks like a, in December titled Candid Reflections on Fall 2021 in Career Services, Observations and Suggestions for Future Practice, where you touched on, it looks like, uh, the need for employers to have to adjust to a changing workplace, the changing dynamics that are going on in light of uh, the pandemic. Can you speak a little bit about that article generally? And then we'll kind of talk you know, about the, the points that you've made. Well, I mean, shout out to my uh, mentor, Samara, for co-writing that. And, you know, as I said, it was candid. You know, we were just brainstorming one day and we're just like, yo, let's write an article about just, as I said, anecdotal, what we just noticed, what we see in our spheres um, as higher ed professionals and just, you know, what we're reading. We we both read a lot of articles and, uh, you know, my father-in-law, shout out to him. He sends me a lot of Washington Post articles. But what I say is that this has done a lot of shifting in regards to the employer-employee dynamic. Um, And so, you know, people are, as I said, taking a lot of control on themselves. So this has greatly affected retention. And so people, you know, are really saying like, you're almost like having like bargaining chips. Like, what are you going to do, employer, to keep me here? Um, And historically, right, employer is almost like this old mindset that like, you should be grateful to be with us and da-da-da-da-da, right? That's a talking down, but it's more so now, like, you should be grateful I stayed here during the pandemic. <laughs> right. what, what are you going to do for me? Are you appreciating my work? You know, uh, recognition that goes up. Like, mm. am I appreciate for all the time I'm doing work. Uh, what about the benefits? You know, like, 
as I said earlier, you know, you can't micromanage me no more while I'm working from home. So all this old school mindset of bosses that wanted people to come back in person because technically they wanted to the eye, they're going to have to relinquish a little bit more trust and say, mm-hmm. well, I had to hope that these people are doing what they were supposed to be doing at home, you know, which is ironic because for those that were trying to be micromanagers, uh, I realized that even during this pandemic, I probably worked harder. I didn't have a real separation of my life. Right. So sometimes I'm still in work mode because it's, it's at home. I live here and stuff. And so I think employ, uh, employers, institutions have to reevaluate the metrics or mechanics of how they kept people because it's not working. <laughs> like what I mean, it's not working. It's, it's shifting. And so they have to think, wow, are we offering a competitive wage for certain X, Y, and Z skills? Uh, are we allowing people to be more flexible? You know, we used to say no, no, or maybe, maybe now we'll give you, you know, three out of the five work days you can do from home or vice versa. We can't, there's no absolute in-person days, right? So it's almost like this bargaining chip. Yeah. And on the HR side of all institutions, not just higher ed, but all, they just have to reprioritize like, what can we do to keep people because they're doing this movement? Um, and, and that's, you know, and we're going to see how that, obviously it's eventually, there's going to be a new set. And then I, I think, that, you know, as power shifts, it goes back and forth. It's going to go back to once they find that balance, you know, like, you know, like, uh, you know, an institution finds a, a flexible offering, then it's going to set again. And then I think another thing will just joggle it, whether it's a recession or whatever, it's going to joggle the landscape of work. But right now, I think it's like almost like who, who has the ball in their court. I yeah. think it's more so now the ball is in the court of the people that have skills that, our desired skills where they can make more movement. You know, what's wild is that there are a lot of employees out there who for years, either because they were just going to work and in the, in the motions or whatever, um, didn't realize that they had power all along. And this pandemic in a way has actually gotten them to think, wait a minute, I do have some power. I do have, you know, something to offer, something of value. Um, I have options now. So it's, it's, it's almost emboldened a whole group of people or awakened a whole yeah. group of new group of people to just kind of sort of, you know, check out the landscape and see where they, you know, might be better valued. Yeah. But also, I mean, that's also not generalized. Like not everyone has that still that power. Right. right. So let's, for instance, think of our first line, uh, you know, workers or people that are doing, you know, jobs that require more physical labor. What I've learned is still there's a disproportionate, like, I think there's a lot of power, more power for the middle class or also more power for, mm-hmm. there's always been power for elite right. and rich. So uh, let's not say like, oh, you know, everyone could just quit and leave their jobs. Certain, certain levels of economics, um, obviously people below the poverty line don't have that same ability or power differential, right? Like, and so I think we may, we're, me and you are mainly talking about that working class, maybe even white collar, you know, population. And also people, as I said earlier, with digital skills, um, they have a little bit more flexibility and such. This power, this employee, employer thing is not a cross industry. Certain industries are going to be still the same way or whatever. Yeah, I think uh, Mayor Eric Adams out of New York made a statement a couple of weeks ago about you know, how New York needs to be open or as open as possible because those lower skilled workers, you know, can't work from home. And he caught a lot of backlash because yeah, of that. Keyword, but I think that's what I and, and, and the key word is he said lower skills, which was very condescending and dismissive. Yeah. Uh, I think what he, I mean, 
I mean, I can't put words in his mouth. And what I was trying to say too, is that the social economic class is that not putting judgment. I'm talking about like the actual modality. So like a plumber is highly skilled. Actually, like they're making bank. Honestly, I heard their plumbers were making bank during COVID because more people were in their home and more homes were having flushing those toilets. Yeah, flushing those <laughs> toilets, whatever, and just more homes. But I meant like, but their work was in person, so they don't have the flexibility as much to like just up and up root and mm-hmm. and work. They can't work remotely there. So you know, I definitely agree with the the backlash that he got because I wasn't equating skills to that flexibility and saying those that have more flexibility are highly skilled. I'm saying just different modality. Like my job, it was one of those things. I just remember this. Like there was times we just reevaluate. It was like, do I need to be in the office to do this? And there's a lot of times where people are like, no, <laughs> like, you know, like, right. right. But the plumber is like, do I need to be in someone's house to do this? Yes. Right. Do I need to be in the hospital to do surgery? Yes. So uh, it doesn't, Make it, I think it was just, I was just saying there's more flexibility with the modality of work. A lot of people's work now had to be shift to not being in person, thus um, making the employers reevaluate too. Because like they really say, does this person really need to be in a cubicle, in a communal cubicle all day to get their work done? Right. And a lot of times the answer is no. Yeah. And, and, and employers are, they saved a lot of money too during the pandemic. So they're like, do we really want to bring everyone back yeah. just to kind of see them do what they were doing at home? Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. So you, you made four, it looks like four key observations in the article um, that I referenced that you co-wrote uh, back in December. And the first one was there are opportunities and limitations for every modality. Um, you know, I got the sense that you meant that employers need to kind of, you know, get creative and and spice it up a bit, maybe make Zoom meetings more engaging. I think you 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 both wrote something like, you know, maybe, you know, engage your employees, use the chat function. I don't make it, you know, boring, quite frankly. I mean, well, I think I mean what we meant, we both meant like, okay, the automatic inverse of in person is not just a Zoom, right? And, or, you know, like the automatic inverse of an in-person career fair is not just a virtual fair uh, because, you know, it, that's not a copy and paste. Like, mm. you know, just because a meeting is not in person in a Zoom, uh, while it's the substitute technologically, it's not, as you said, is engaging, right? It's not just the automatic, right? And so uh, I think the pandemic made me realize, okay, like, yes, we have done a lot more Zoom calls. We've done a lot more with uh, virtual engagement. But still, one, it doesn't replicate or replace the authenticity of meeting face-to-face. And also, that it's not just some copy-and-paste solution. Like, okay, we got a meeting. Let's just do a Zoom link. You have to think about, like, what is going to make this still engaging? Because we've known that people are just getting burnt out from the computer. And so I think that as we navigate, you see these new branch-offs. You see these new platforms. You see, like people doing like virtual games, but they have the link in the chat so they can do like a uh, Kahoot and things like that, where it's like, okay, yes, we're going to shift to a virtual modality, but just doing a Zoom link is not, that's not fitting. Like it's not engaging. You still have to, as you said, be creative and you still have to explore different options. Um, it's almost like, don't be lazy just because yeah. we're not in person no more. Right. Like it's not just an easy solution to just go virtual. Like, you know, like people just pivot like, okay, I just go virtual. Yeah. They didn't think about it. They didn't, they didn't say, okay, if we're going to go to virtual, how can we still 
have an engaging and conversation and fun. Uh, you know, let's not just make no link like chat and gamification. Like, I'll, mm. I'll give you an example. So there was a national conference, right? Uh, and a national conference, uh, they were waiting, going back and forth. You know, uh, and they were like, okay, we're gonna go, we're gonna go virtual. And so they didn't just do some normal Zoom and have breakout rooms. You know, they had like this new platform. Um, uh, I think it was called a Sullivan or something like that. Mm-hmm. Where like, okay, you know. You, it has a simulation that you go into many rooms or when you go into rooms, it opens up little mini video chats. Like you're having like okay. uh, like little little networking conversations. Right, right. And then it was gamified where it was like, okay, for this conference, if you meet 10 new people, which I don't know how they were counting this, you get points. If you comment, you get points. If you attend mm. this portion of the conference, you get points. And it was legit for the whole conference. There was a scoreboard. <laughs> people were getting into that. Yeah, and people were getting into that, like you know, like engaging in the conference yeah. virtually, but yeah. trying to win. If you use our hashtag and post on it on social media, which was pulling data from the hashtag, you get points. So it was mm-hmm. like it turned a conference into it was gamified, and that was fun. And you know, we're still on a computer, we're still at home, um, and things like that. So I think what me and Samara were really trying to hone in on is that. As you pivot, don't just think, okay, go virtual without some thoughtful planning on how to still make it engaging both ways. That That's fascinating. I mean, because I think, yeah, in, in many ways, Zoom has become synonymous with, it's almost like it's definitely the default, but most okay. people think of it as I'm not checked in. Because we've been doing this for a year and a half now. So people just know, oh, I'm, I've got a Zoom. I don't have to put my video on. I don't really have to pay attention. I got other stuff to do. So it, it doesn't even come close to replicating what an in-person meeting exactly. you know, would be because it's, yeah. And so you, your second point or yeah, the second point by both of you is we need to accept and address the great resignation. What did you guys mean by that? I'm not saying it's a reality. Like, you know, kind of, yeah. we just talked about earlier in the, in the, um, in the podcast or this episode, it's a reality what it is. And I said, both sides, you know, those that have as the employer that realization start reassessing. I think I was talking more and more for the active job seekers and those like come to the realization that this is the way to to really take advantage and, and try to make moves, but also like reevaluate your skills. You know, like this is a time to learn something digitally. Like look at job postings and say, you know what, like you gotta like everyone's gotta be good at something technology-wise. Like you, you can't say. Like, okay, I'm about to say, this is the realization of it, is that uh, you can't say, oh, that's just, you know, that technology stuff is not for me. You know, I'm yeah. older or whatever. Or that's that's too hard. Like, you're going to get left behind. Like, everyone needs to have a basic level of technological literacy. And so when you come to a realization that this great resignation is real, then you will understand, like, you need to be skilled yourself as an active job seeker to get jobs. And then as we talked about earlier, as the employer... You just need to come to a realization of what can you do to retain talent, attract talent and all that because people are making moves. So that's what I meant. Like just understand on both sides what's going on and then what can you do within that situation? We, you know, both, both entities have agency. Like you have to think about, like you can't just do things the same way. That's not going to work. Both sides are going to get left behind. You as an active job seeker are going to get left behind and you as an employer are going to be, not as competitive as other employers that attract people. So both just come to the realization of what it is and, and, and grow from it and learn from it. 
Yeah. How are you all? Because you're in the higher education space and career services. This must be a really interesting time in terms of preparing younger people for this new reality in this new world. How does that sort of flesh itself out um, in the career services format in, in higher ed today? Well, I can only speak to like one institution, which is where I work, George Mason. So, and I, I totally, like I said, this is nationwide, different uh, groups. And also I'll be more specific. I, I, I also particularly work very focused with media, arts, design, sports and rec and hospitality and tourism. So for me, I can speak to my industries. You know, what I've noticed is uh, certain industries continue to grow and thrive and some were hurt hard. The one that was hurt hard was... Uh, hospitality and tourism. And so I had to be very, very, um, when I work with students, I had to be very transparent. I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. maybe you wanted to, you know, work in the hotels or whatever, which is going to bounce back. Eventually the world's going to open up. People are going to do it. But we also had to say creatively students, what did you learn in your major that maybe you might not work for the tourism industry, but you know, you still have skills. So like if you're good at event planning, that's still project management, right? Or if you have to promote your event, then you need to be competent in social media, which you might not go into the event space, but you can go into the marketing and communication space. So for my, for my students that were hospitality and tourism, I really had to hone in on what their skills were and say, okay, you may have had this tunnel vision for this space, but you, know, you can still learn the skills you learn in your major and go somewhere else. For the other ones, for the media students, the graphic design, the filmmakers, Oh, man, they're thriving, but I just tell them, like, I, like this is what I told them, and this really didn't have an effect, COVID or not, is that, like, to set yourself apart in the creative space, it don't matter what your major is, it's like, do you have tangible proof? Mm. So, if you want to be a writer, you can't say, oh, I'm waiting for my classes to teach me how to write. Like, do you have your own blog? Do you write articles? Right. You, you know, I don't, have a, I don't have a degree in creative writing, I write, so you need to have content. Uh, if you're a filmmaker, a film student, yes, you 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 making films for your school projects, but are you making films on the side for yourself too? Create content, create content. Uh, that, that, that that's regardless. And so uh, I tell anyone that I work with, specifically as students, do not just think that your coursework is it for you to be marketable. You have to garner your own experiences, whether it's an internship, whether it's study abroad, whether it's you know clubs and organization involvement. And as it is, don't just tell me that you can do these things. You need to show me. So every student that is a filmmaker, you should have a demo reel or a YouTube channel or a Vimeo. If you're an oh. aspiring writer, you better have some articles. And it don't mean you need to have articles published in a national paper, school paper, school magazine, local paper, tangible. You see articles in national blogs that relate to your associations, write. Um, if you're a graphic designer, what is your website looking like? Let me see your designs. And now I ain't gonna lie, I'm not aesthetically, I don't know what I'm looking at. Like, I'm not, <laughs> like I, right. I can't give you feedback on if these colors look good or not. But right. the fact is, I say, okay, is your website look good? If I was an employer, can I find you? And so I think that that is what I've taught to students, particularly in my industry. And I think it does kind of cross over to other industries, you know, tangible proof. Like if you're an IT major that you have skills in coding and all that, but you can actually tangibly show the employer that you have those skills. Um, but yeah, man, like during the higher ed and career process, it's really just trying to get students to think outside of 
my major makes me do this and really try to, as we've always done, I think this is always going to be a thing. This is never really going to go away is that we want to prepare our students to be able to one, write about what they can do resume uh, and cover letter, talk about what they can do, which is, you know, their interview skills, talk about what they can do and then mm -hmm. tangibly show. And that could be a, vi a variety of different ways to show that they can do what employers are looking for. And, and I've always heard that the younger generation, meaning I guess those who are between, I guess now between 21 and maybe 32, 33. Um, and I just missed the window. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> 37, I'm, just, I'm, 32, I'm stopping it right there, right? Yeah, middle, middle age, I guess. I don't know what it is. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> but that they're more, um, they're less likely to stay in jobs that they don't like. They, you know, this is a generation that grew up with, um, you know, devices at hand and they don't necessarily stick around. So I'm wondering how receptive have they been to this sort of new advice? I mean, I, I would think that they would have, that they would be actually. Now, now, now I don't think that this, the new advice is not like, I don't think, you know, we've been talking about this for a while about the skills, skills mm -hmm. don't equal career. I mean, majors don't equal your careers. The skills equal careers. You can, if you ask anyone what their major was in undergrad has been quite different. We really try to say, what did you learn skill-wise in your mm -hmm. major? Like, I'm a history major. I learned about how to read, how to write, all that stuff. I think, I think uh, what is just a continuous discussion, and I think we always talked about it, was values. A lot of uh, the younger generation uh, are value-led, meaning like, um, I know my parents, they'd be like, yo, just get a job, you get money, you go, you're like, you don't need to feel purpose at your job. Like, like, like right. yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like your parents said, like, do you love your job? I don't need to love my job. Right. Like I don't need to love what I'm doing. I don't need to care or be passionate about it. But we're in a generation where they're like, especially these young people as they come up, you know, more advocate, they advocate for themselves. They, they, they call out the injustices in the world, you know, on their social media. They're like, you know, they're like vocal, you know? So I think a lot of them are really looking now career wise is that, when I do something, do I find purpose in it? Meaning like, if I'm going to work for you, employer, do I care about your mission? Does right. your mission align with me? You know, do you help people that I want to help? And, you know, I, I, I'm not just going to go to a job just to check in and check out. I want to actually be engaged, actually care. And if you don't, and I think, I think this is the younger generation. If this doesn't do that for me, I'm moving. <laughs> and, you know, you always be like, oh, my goodness, that's crazy. You know, like you can't just move, you know, but I think that that's the generation. I think we're, I think in the middle, right? Like we're not the, well, I am uh, what Jen, I'm a geriatric middle. Gen geriatric? Is it? It's a geriatric millennial. Like I'm not, the, oh. young, I'm not the young millennial. I'm the geriatric. Okay. The point is the, the, the baby boomers, there was like the, uh, what's it called? The, the people from World War II and the baby boomers right yeah. after that. Right. They were the generation that you work someplace bust, you know, bust your butt 40 mm -hmm. years, you retire. And then I think, you know, Gen X and millennials are a little bit shifting where it's like, okay, we're in the middle. Like we want stability, but we're also a little bit value driven. I think there's the opposite now. Like this generation is more value driven and they'll, they'll make it work. You know, like they'll navigate and pivot way more than us. And I think that that's also the employers are, you know, people start new jobs every two years and stuff like that. Mm. So they're like, they're, Constantly reassessing, they're constantly, you know, they're, they're they're journaling, they're thinking in themselves like, "Wow, year to year, am I still passionate about this place?" <laughs> like, you know, and they don't stick with. You're not saying they don't stick with things, but I think the the turnaround period is shorter. 
for the, the younger generation. So what I try to do is still empower them to get skills, but also I'm open to having a discussion with them too about like, you know, looking at the company's values, thinking about your own identities. You know, if mm. you're, you know, black, you know what I'm saying? Like, does this place respect black people? Does this place respect, I'm, right. you know, I'm a, I'm a person of the LBGTQ. Right. And I see that they have like anti-gay, uh, you know, policies in their, in their company. Yeah. I ain't rocking with that, you know? So like, I think a lot of this generation are like, not only am I skilled, but I'm gonna look at you employer and see if you match my values. Yeah. And also I was, um, it was a relative of mine, probably a year or two out of college. I think she was working for Walmart or the subsidiary of Walmart. And I went to the workplace <laughs> and it was ping pong tables and, you know, soda stands and ice cream. And it was like, you know, a totally different concept to what I'm used to. It seems like, I mean, how common is that for workplaces today, uh, especially those that are trying to attract new grads? Is that, oh, is no, that I mean, like a common I, thing? I, I ain't gonna lie, I haven't been on a site visit to a place outside of okay. Mexico before pre-pandemic. But then when I did go to Wiltrap one time for the interns, they had like ping pong tables and fun places. So I think, or I think my sister says she used to work at um, Yelp. And Yelp mm-hmm. had a really cool, fun environment at the workplace and these places like WeWork and all that. So, you know, I, I think that is the motive. I mean, I work on a college campus, so there's a lot of fun stuff all over the place, but that's just because mm-hmm. it's a college campus. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I, I think the physical spaces of offices are going to change too. I think there's also going to be cost cutting as in like uh, co-work spaces. So mm-hmm. more than one organization going in on a place. And so you might be working for one company and another person's working for another company, but you're using the same space. Um, uh, and that, that might be a shift too um, in regards to the physical of, of locations, um, co-working and co-working spaces and all mm-hmm. that stuff. That's probably going to grow um, and big screens and technology everywhere. That's amazing. Uh, but I think, I think you're right. Like, I think, I think the aesthetics and, and the, the environment of offices are going to have to be just as important as their HR policies because, you know, people, when they go there, they're like, I have an option to stay at home. Why would I come to this office if it's not? Right. You know, it's not a closet or very dark, dimly lit, you know what I'm saying? So right. I think I think spatially too, that's going to change how office looks. Like I, I really think that there's going to be a not that many traditional cubicle looking places anymore. Wow. I don't know. I'm just making that up. You know, like, I is, hear you. This, yeah. this is me brainstorming, but I'm thinking right. like, I'm thinking, well, one, I think that having everyone corralled together is not going to be a good look anyway after this pandemic. You know, people are going to like, People have already look at spaces differently, right? How yeah. do you space things? Mm-hmm. Right? How do you space things? But also I think you're right, like if people have the ability to work from home and they have to come into the office, what's the, the structure of that office look like? Because mm. you're not gonna be there all the time. So point three, um, you said in uh, in that article, um, leaders must step up to champion sustained focus on transparency, staff morale, and work life integration. Uh, and you both made the point that people don't leave bad jobs, they leave bad bosses. And that yeah. managers need to focus on skills related to kindness and empathy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. have you ever noticed, have you ever heard this term, uh, there's a difference between a boss and a leader? Absolutely. Right? So now it's like, you know, we don't need task managers. You know, I think if you think, of, if, if you got like a master's degree, and you're working this job, I don't need a task manager. I know how to get tasks done. 
You want to be inspired. You want leaders. And so leadership is going to be, you know, a great skill that's um, contributing to that retention. Because as I said, people don't want to just a task manager or a boss. They want a leader, someone that inspires them. And I think, you know, the undervalued skill of kindness, right? Like I think it goes a long way uh, where a boss can, I mean, I think bosses have been forced to, right? Like they hear your kids screaming in the background and they got their right. kids screaming in the background. Right. And, you know, someone, you know, significant amount of loss, you know, death, uh, you know, has increased empathy, right? Like people dying at large numbers for COVID. And so kindness, right? Like we're going through a tough time. It's like, just say what it is, right? This is not easy. And so I think people have really latched on to good leaders during this time. People have latched on to good leaders and stayed where they want it and, and said, I'm going to work hard. And people have left bad bosses mm. uh, during this time. Um, I mean, they also, I think I ain't going to lie too. people have left good leaders because uh, a leader grew them and now they're ready for a new, you know, that, that's, that's, that's also a, not a bad thing. Leaders develop other leaders and then they be, go on and become leaders themselves. And that's good. That means they're, they're not supposed to stay with you. Uh, I've learned, mm-hmm. I heard this saying that, if you are a good leader, then someone shouldn't stay under you forever. That's right. If you're a good leader, eventually you give them the skills and they leave and become a leader themselves. And hopefully you've empowered them to be a good leader and inspire someone else. So it's like paying it forward. But at the same time, people will go hard. People go hard for a good leader. People will go hard for someone that sees mm. them. People go hard for, can you imagine when someone said, you know, that's, that's the type of coach I would run through a brick wall for. Wow. Like, because they felt seen. They're like, I'll do it. I'll do it. You know, mm. I know it's tough. And so I think, I think this COVID has exacerbated the fact that people, well, one, those that are good leaders, they've shined. They've shined during this, right? They, they, they have stepped up and you, you can tell who's been good leaders during COVID. And then the opposite end or the inverse is that COVID has revealed who was probably, uh, you know, needs to work on that, like actually need to embed those soft skills of leadership and yes, task management, that's good and all, but like, are you, are you caring about people? Are you compassionate? Mm. Are you empathetic? Mm. Are you kind? And I'm not meaning kind as in a sense of like that foo-foo, I love you, but kind as in like, just decently nice. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Just like, yeah. like just actually caring or say something like how you're doing or how I, you know, that's basics. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. The basic, someone is going through a tough time in the office, let's corral around them and, write a, a get well card or something yeah. like that. that's kindness you know um so yeah people don't leave bad ball i mean people don't leave good leaders or they do and they thank their leaders but people do leave bad bosses yeah i was i, I, was, I saw on linkedin recently i don't know who posted it, it may have been you <laughs> but um it was a video of this man interviewing for a position and two people were interviewing him and he had on his you know his shirt and tie. Did you see that? Yeah, right. yeah. And, <laughs> and then his shorts on. And, and right. he was like, that's all good. Me too. Right. Essentially. Right. <laughs> but that yeah. was amazing. You know what I mean? Because he didn't have to say he just got up, the the the, the interviewer, and you could see his shorts. And it kind of like, so he brought himself, not down, but just kind of like he equaled out the playing field um, during the interview. So that way the guy wouldn't be completely caught up on the fact that, oh my gosh, they saw me in shorts. This is over. You know what I mean? Like that was that was true. What seems to me to be empathetic leadership. Like I, I see you, I got you. I'm, I'm with you. Or transparency, you know, like just like yeah. a leader is like, yo, I don't, 
like, you know, they say, you know, I know you're looking to me. I'm, I'm advocating for us as an office, but I don't know just everything I'm learning. I don't know more than you kind of thing, or this is difficult for me too. Or, um, like they don't need to be like, you know, like, uh, a me too kind of like, Oh, just, I'm going through a hard time too kind of thing, but more so like I'm in the struggle too. Um, I'm still a leader. I'm still advocating. I'm still probably the vocal one or, you know, I'm still the one that's fighting for this, but at the same time, I'm no better. You know, I understand. I'm not coming at you from a condescending mindset. I think that, I think that's where really good leaders shine, right? They, they're relatable. Uh, what is it? Uh, there's a poem by called if it was like, can walk, you know, walk in the crack. I'm mm-hmm. murdering it right now. I'm probably gonna get in trouble with my crack. It's, it's like you can walk, a, you know, you can wear the, the the crown, but not lose the common touch. Uh, right? Like, nice. right. You, know, you can speak and you can, but you're still, you're not too far removed from people you're leading. You still have the common touch. You still have the relatability. Mm-hmm. But you're a leader. You know, like mm-hmm. there is a burden to leadership, right? You make harder decisions and mm-hmm. and you have to do things tough, but at the same time, you're still one of us. You know? Yeah, I was watching. Well, like, like, you were one of us, right? You still want to, like, you know? Right. Um, and um, I've seen that. I've seen that very organic. Like, I've seen leaders that do that and where you're like, yeah, I know she's having a tough time. Yeah. So I've even thought, like, wow, I know this leader's having a tough time. I don't want to be the one to stress her out by not doing my job. That's mm-hmm. what a good leader does. A good leader, a good leader would inspire someone that they'll do their work because they feel accountable to you. They're not doing their work just to get you off their back. They're doing their work like, I don't want to let X, Y, and Z person down. I feel accountable to them. I want to help them out. Or I want to give them the tools to advocate for me. So while they're in the meetings, I got to give them ammo. Like if they're fighting for budgets and fighting for this, well, then I got to work really hard so that when they go to this meeting, they say, here's what my, this is the work that my office is doing tangibly. And they can advocate, but they can't advocate for me if I don't give them, you know, evidence. So that's a good leader. A good leader would be like, man, I gotta, I gotta help this person by doing the best I can so that they can look one, they can look good as a leader. And two, I give them ammo to advocate for me because a leader can't advocate if they don't have, you know, good evidence. So that's a good leader. But a boss would be like, I'm just doing this. So that person leave me alone. I don't want to hear from it. Pretty much. I want to take a quick little break, and when we come back, I want to pick up with point four, and then we can get into uh, talking a little bit about your your podcast. What's up, guys? Sergio Gregorio, aka Serge here, and I have an amazing tip for you. Do you have a limited budget but want to start a podcast? Well, then Anchor is for you. The creation tools on this app will let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone, or if you prefer, from your computer. Anchor will also distribute your podcast to many platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. With Anchor, you can make money from your podcast, and you don't have to have a certain number of listeners before you do. Yep, you got it. There is no threshold to meet for number of listeners. Anchor gives you everything you need to start a podcast. And it's all in one place. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.
So before the break, we were going through um, several of the steps that you and your co-author, whose name I forget. The Mayor Reynolds. Yes. 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 Uh, for you, you all made four points in the article that you, you published in December. And the fourth point was stakeholders will continue to put our DEI efforts, I guess, the diversity uh, and inclusion. Equity, diversity, equity and inclusion. Diversity, equity and inclusion. Yes. Okay. Uh, efforts to the test. All employers, including career services programs, I guess the point was all employers, including career services programs, need to look at diversity. Was that yeah, the point? I mean, yeah. yeah, the point is like, you know, obviously it was a big wave, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, all the things, civil unrest, uh, you know, insurrection. I mean, we were in a very turbulent, racial, tense time. We're still in it, you know what I'm saying? And so I think, you know, you see all these people slapping, you know, DI stickers and making new positions and all that stuff. So what me and Samara are really trying to say is that uh, we're going to see through COVID how many employers, institutions, systems, you know, when they say we're committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, have put into practice things that were just not um, popular at the time. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, what was called like where they're just advocating and trying to, you know, say that we're equitable because they want to keep up with their competitors and they're, they're doing it just so that they can hire talent. Are they doing these practices because they think it's right? And are they employing diversity, equity, and inclusion because they know that this needs to be a system that needs to be changed and, you know, continuous. So it's almost like, okay, I see you're doing it, but let's see if you keep that energy. That's, that's basically it. Like, are you keeping that energy? Are we, if I look back five years, are we still committed to these things? And was, mm-hmm. it, just, was it just performative? That's my word. Was it performative mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in the moment? All these things that you're doing or hiring hiring these things, you know, hiring these people or creating these roles and all that stuff. Yes. I, I, and I'm, I'm not shading. I think it's great. I think it's great. I think there, you know, there needs to be attention on diversity, equity, inclusion, but I think like everyone else wants to know, is this going to last? Are you going to keep that energy? And, and we'll see. I mean, I, I think that's, that is the test. That is what, you know, institutions are going to, you know, when we look back at this five years, did they keep that same energy or they were just trying to make nice stickers and, you know, commercial yeah. and, and, and be very performative. So we'll see. And that's what I think, uh, as I said earlier, I think a whole generation is going to hold them accountable because as I said earlier, this new generation of workers are coming in with that mindset. So if you don't address it now and you don't continuously, I think it's going to continuously affect your retention uh, forever. Because what, what is, what is an employer that really um, values diversity and inclusion and equity um, I mean, what does that look like post pandemic? Um, has that, has that changed? Um, do you think, I, I mean, what would- and I, and I, and I, I don't want to coin like, so, you know, I'm a career professional and I, I'm even doing my own learning, uh, yeah. in, in regards to diversity, equity, inclusion, mm-hmm. but I think, and so I'm gonna just talk anecdotally. And so, you know, this would be what Philip Wilkerson would like to see, not an expert. I want to see, you know, when they, that, 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 um, that infographic where they were like, yes, we're diverse. And then it was like a white person at top and it was all these right. black people, but right. yeah, there's a lot of different, there's diversity, right? But is there representation and leadership? Mm. Is that, that's the kind of diversity I want to see. Like, you know, not everyone. Okay. I don't want to say like the inverse, like all the leaders are black men, you know what I'm saying? Like, or, or black females, you know, I definitely want to see, you know, a, you know, white men and, uh, uh, you know, Latinx, you know, woman and a black male, 
or someone that identifies as non-binary. Like I want to see leadership that's diverse. And, and when, so when they say we're, a, we are a diverse organization, not only is like the, the working level or the entry level people diverse, I want to see that same diversity represented in the leadership or the people that make decisions, honestly. Yeah. I mean, how far away do you think we're from that, that time? Um, uh, I, I mean, nationwide, I'll bet pretty far. Yeah. I'm not going to lie nationwide. Uh, and then also industry by industry. You know, certain industries mm-hmm. are predominantly male, predominantly female. Some industries are predominantly white. So, I, I, yeah, we're pretty far in lots of different aspects. Um, but, you know, there's certain places where I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, mm-hmm. you got like a you know, black leader and their team is diverse. As I said earlier, not just all black people because the leader is black, but there's all different identities at the table. Because, like I said, they're making decisions. Like, think about it. Like, historically... You know, if it's like a, a a council of white men and they're making decisions for women too, like you don't even have a perspective there. Right, like, right. That don't make no sense. Like, you know, um, how are you going to make decisions on a group that you don't even identify with? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, like policies, like, you know, like why would men make a policy on maternity leave? And what I mean by that is like, I mean, yeah, but like telling her when a, a mom can come back to work. Yeah. And this thing like that was like, was a woman's input on that decision? Like maybe, you know, like different diversity, like diversity is not only what I'm thinking is diversity is not only good for, um, you know, optics and looking good. Diversity is good for thought and perspectives. Mm-hmm. Cause because when you make, make high level decisions and you have different voices, they could be like, wow, I didn't think about that. Like I didn't think of from a woman's perspective or a new mom's perspective that right. having someone come back after two weeks, that's crazy. Like a, a, a woman just had a kid. How would that make sense? A mom. I, I bet if a mom was in that decision, she'd be like, "I just had a baby. I'm not coming back to work two weeks." That would. Can we work? You know. Da, da, da. So like, we need diversity in leadership because when they make decisions, I think they need to have diversity in thought. Like, did you think about this group? Did you think about this group? Did you think about like, you know, um, you know, people are all up in arms. But yeah, did you think about how bathrooms are labeled? Or you see my yeah. pronouns? Do you think like? Did you think about when, you know, when we uh, uh, introduce ourselves that the person that doesn't want to use pronouns, they feel ostracized. We need, we need different voices uh, to contribute to decisions. Like, yeah. And, and, and diversity doesn't just happen. I mean, you, you, the, the leadership has to be conscious of its need and, and, and be proactive about it. I mean, as we speak, uh, we've got a justice, uh, Stephen Breyer, who is um, resigning from the court. And Joe Biden made a promise, not just to black people, of course, to black people, but to really the country that he was going to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. Now, to some, they're like, well, why? I mean, why do you have to, like, you know, focus on race or why is that even it? Well, because (laughs) we've never had a woman of color, (laughs) a black woman of color um, on the court. And something like 98% of all Supreme Court justices have been white men, not just like white, but like white men. Yes. And yeah. they're, making, they're making decisions at a judicial level that affects policies that some of their policies don't affect white men. Absolutely. Some of the, what people are doing with their bodies. I said, let me, I'm not taking a stance either way. Yeah. I'm just saying like the decisions they make in regards to schools and access to schools or bodies and they're making decisions with only 
uh, and that's the only, you know, but I'm just saying, I'm assuming with a life lens that's from one perspective. Sure. And so that's not equitable. So I, I think, I, I mean, not to say like, I, I don't like when people say, I'm going to hire this guy because he's black. Yeah, right. I don't want that. But at the same time, I do think that they should address though, that like, what is the leadership? And are we at least giving applicants a chance of diversity? You know, like, yeah, can, I don't know. I was like, are you just conscious of it? Like, are you conscious of the leadership? I don't want you to publicly say we're going to pick. And this is me. This is Philip Wilkerson. I want, you know, I, is this weird? Um, and I don't know. I could, I could explain it as a paradox. I want to be valued for my skills, my, my competence, uh, the content of my character. So I don't want to be colorblind in that sense, you know, but also at the same time, I definitely don't want someone saying they picked me because I was black. Right. But here's the inverse. I also understand that like we should probably have a diversity in thought though, you know? So, you know, like you just look like at least, at least interview people of color. Absolutely. I mean, you know, diversity. Like, and, yeah, yeah. And give them an opportunity, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 I don't know, just be cognizant, at least be cognizant of your leadership and the makeup, the demographic makeup of your leadership and, and understand that, you know, yeah. it's not appropriate to have a homogenous leadership. A homogenous leadership is not good leadership. A homogenous leadership mm-hmm. is, is doomed to fail. Homogenous leadership is going to somewhere along the lines, conflict is going to arise. Wow. Yeah, so if it, it, essentially diverse leadership really kind of elevates everyone. Is it, it benefits everyone? I think there's yes. this idea that it it's it doesn't necessarily, or that things are going to change drastically for one particular group. You know, that there's no benefit to everyone, but that that's not the case. No, I mean, I'm thinking like this. Okay, if I was a white man, what would be the benefit for me for diversity? I think one would be retention. Uh, it'd be I say avoiding conflict, but decisions better decisions mm. that would be effective. Uh, I don't know. I just feel like it would just on the surface, like you make money. I don't know. People buy this. <laughs> right. Like, you know, like, I don't know. Like, like, you know how you always flip it? Like, yeah, you'll make a lot of money if you got diverse leadership. I don't know. It's like, there is a tangible benefit to diversity um, and not just a kumbaya benefit. You know, like we all peace and love and get along. There's actually more efficient, less conflict, uh, more production, more buy-in better retention, all that correlates. So like investing in diversity is going to make your organization run better anyway. So that it, it does have a actual benefit, not just a kumbaya benefit. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your, your podcast, Positive Filter. Yeah. So uh, it's going to be five years in April, mm-hmm. which is crazy. I didn't really think about how long I've been just talking on a mic. Um, I started it. I was doing the little YouTube videos in my car called Random Ramas of Philip Wilkerson. And I realized that YouTube videos were boring. And also I didn't really want to do videos. So I asked my friend, what's this podcast link? And he told me, he connected me with his mentor. His name is Dean Picari. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I, I was like, wow, this is great. I'm going to just do podcast. And um, I got the name Positive Filter because, you know, my name is Philip. Positivity is a well-being positive and a filter kind of play on names. I can't take any credit. I put it on Facebook. I said, if I had a podcast, what would I name it? And my friend, Kate Cavanaugh, she just said positive filter. I was like, wow, that sounds awesome. So shout out to her. Still, I own it. You know what I'm saying? 
Kate, nice. trademark. Can't trademark it. You know what I'm saying? But, um, but it's been a great passing project of mine. Um, I used to, uh, at first, I tried to do a couple episodes by myself. And I was like, man, that's not where it is. And I realized that I love to interview people. And so mm-hmm. for me, for, for five years, I had this running journal, basically, of interviews with people that I just wanted to talk to and get to know. And I learned, I have a whole book. When I, when I interview them, I take notes. And it's just been a, it's been a, just a growth opportunity. It's, you know, taught mm-hmm. me new skills. I had to learn how to, you know, audio edit, learn new things, but it's also honed my confidence, my public speaking ability. Mm. And it's just been something fun. So yeah, positive filter going on five year podcasting. I guess I'm a vet in the game and it's just been fun. It's been something that's, you know, allowed me to meet people like you and, uh, you know, reach a new audience and learn new things. So it's been pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, and that's I, you know, I, I would say the same. And I'm I'm pretty new to uh, to podcasting, but it, it feels like with each recording, with each taping, there's like a little bit of growth. You know, there's new exposure to a new idea, a new person, a new way of thinking, and it's been phenomenal. You know, it's and it's like hopefully I'm lucky enough to talk to whoever I want to talk to <laughs> as the show grows. But um, it, it's been pretty good. And you also you on your show you focus on. Positive. I mean, just well-being, honestly. Well-being, okay. Basically, every episode, I just talk to random people uh, about anything. But the filter part is that, like, I just talk about a lesson in growth. So even I've had an episode about grief, which is a very sad subject. But what was the growth we learned from grief or how how to be more empathetic? Um, I talked to people from different industries, you know, like their experiences as being a Black lawyer. You know, I had, shout out to my frat bro, uh, brother, um, Blake Morant. He talked about his experiences being a lawyer and becoming a dean of law school. So I think every episode, I think the central focus, which I, I thought at first, wow, sometimes my episodes are all over the place. It's just well-being, lessons, compassion, learning lessons about career and family and all that. How can we have not a positive spin on it, but like a growth mindset on that? Like what is, what is the positive thing that we learn from it? Even in adversity and challenges, what did we learn that was contributed to us in a positive way. So a positive filter. That is awesome. I mean, would, is there any one, one particular thing that you've learned from your own show um, over the last five years that, that, that stands out for you? Uh, that I could be consistent. Second to my marriage, this is probably the longest thing I've done. Uh, my marriage wow. going on 12 years this summer. Uh, you know, I worked out, I've done, you know, the gym. Uh, I used to be a power lifter, did that for a convinced time. But I think this is the first time, I think almost five years, I've stick with something. So the podcast has taught me like something I really cared about, very passionate about. Like I'm probably gonna do this for the rest of my life. Um, you probably will. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'll have a podcast. Why not? You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. maybe I'll slow down or maybe, you know, maybe I'll do one, you know, but this is something I could just keep on going forever and interviewing people and mm. having a mic, you know, like this will just be a, a journey that I'll just keep on doing. I'll have positive filter episodes when I'm 80. And I mean by that, I mean, I mean, like just getting a mic and interviewing people. I mean, right. I think that's something I could commit to. Um, even in the busiest times of my life, I'll make it work. You know, I'll scale back or scale down. But the podcast taught me like, wow, when you're committed, just like I'm committed to my marriage, uh, I can do this and I'll keep it going. And so I think this is the second to my marriage. This is the longest engagement that I've had. Wow. I, I haven't even had a job at one place for five years yet. Really? Yeah. Wow. I came on, okay. I came on four years now for Mason. 
I've used to only be three and under. Mason was four. So that was the longest I've been at one place employed wise, um, you know, without moving around. So yeah, this podcast has been the second longest continuous thing that I committed to. And it taught me that I can do that. I can, I can stick with things. Yeah, that's awesome. So for people who want to tune in to your podcast, learn more about you, follow you, tell them where they can find you. Uh, positive uh, is spelled positive and filter is spelled with a P-H. So P-H-I-L-T-E-R, positive filter. So I have an Instagram page. I have a Twitter account. I have a Facebook page. I sometimes go live on LinkedIn. But the actual audio part of the podcast, you can just find on wherever you listen to your podcast, which is Apple and Spotify and all that positive filter you type it it will come up if you stop at positive fill that's another guy's podcast which is crazy so you got to type in positive and then filter and that'll be me there literally is a positive fill if you just stop at positive fill is that right if you add the tur to t-e-r my podcast will come up positive filter everyone all right phil wilkinson thanks for coming on i appreciate you taking the time out to uh talk to us about your podcast and and all of this you know your articles and and career It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's it. The Surge Experience. Thanks for listening and make sure you listen again next time.